Hey guys, welcome back to the Bitcoin Magazine podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Graham. When we first reached out to Jameson Lopp for our first episode, we wanted to talk to him about being digitally private. But we also found out around the same time, Lopp was about to publish a op-ed with Bitcoin Magazine. In it, he disproves the claim that Craig Wright is Satoshi Nakamoto. But then our editors and our legal team were like, no, no, not yet. Uh, Craig Wright is handing out libel lawsuits left and right. It's not ready. Just let us come through it. We will come back to you when you're ready to reach out to him again. So we waited. And when the op-ed finally dropped, we got Lop back on the line and we talked to him for close to an hour. That's right. And for anyone who doesn't live on crypto Twitter, here's sort of the background. Jameson Lopp, obviously a well-known figure in the space. He's a former Bitcoin engineer amongst a digital privacy advocate, that sort of thing. He's been compiling this information for several years, and in it, he's disproving Craig Wright's claim of being Satoshi Nakamoto. Lopp published all this info in the op-ed, and if you haven't given it a read, check it out. There's a link in our show notes, but be warned, it's extensive. Very extensive. So for time's sake, we're going to skip the news today, and we're going to jump right into our interview with Jameson. Here it is. Uh, Jameson, before we jump into the article, um, can you give us a little background on your history with Craig? Well, you know, like most people, I really started paying more attention to him in, I think, 2015 when he had the whole media blitz uh, you know, coming out as Satoshi. Though, I don't know at what point I realized uh, that I had actually interacted with him a few times before that, I think in 2014 on Twitter. And uh, basically everything he was saying back then uh, seemed kind of like nonsense or gibberish to me. And so I I generally did not pay that much attention to him, though uh, eventually he ended up deleting that Twitter account along with a number of other of his, his sort of online postings, you know, after the whole media blitz happened. And, um, you know, I was fairly... Um, skeptical as most people were and figured oh this is just going to be another short-term thing that's gonna you know go down in the annals of bitcoin history and most people are going to forget about it but then you know the years kept dragging on and he just uh, managed to keep coming back with with new things and you know staying in the limelight and so that's what eventually led me to to basically do a lot of my own research and end up compiling a lot of information to try to make it easier for people to understand what has actually been going on. Right. And you've, you've met him before, right? That's right. Uh, we met in person at the, I believe, 2017 Bitcoin or it's the Future of Bitcoin conference in Arnhem. And I had no idea he was going to be there. He was actually a like surprise appearance. He wasn't slated to be a speaker or anything, but uh, I think some other speaker, uh, I think it, I don't know if it was like John Matonis or someone else uh, who was slated to speak, basically got up on stage and then said, you know, I cede the rest of my time to Craig Wright. And then he went off on an hour long rant about all kinds of stuff. And of course, that was the conference also where Bitcoin ABC was announced and it really kind of started the ball rolling on the whole Bitcoin cash fork. So what was your impression of him when you met him? Um, He was 
more personable, you know, face to face when he didn't have a camera uh, on him or when he wasn't up on stage in front of a bunch of other people. But it was still very challenging to actually have technical conversation with him because he would throw out a lot of terms that almost nobody understood. And, and, you know, looking back on these things, uh, it's really a, a kind of like techno babble, uh, you know, trying to confuse people by making yourself seem like you're a lot smarter than everyone else. And, you know, if you, you try to dig down and question him on these things and say, Hey, you know, you're, you're, you're saying this in a way that I don't really understand. Can you, can you break it down for me? That's when he tends to get more incredulous and just be like, well, you need to go do your own research if you don't understand what I'm talking about. And I think that's kind of the hallmark of someone who's trying to fool a lot of people is that they're not able to explain things simply. And then when you ask them to do so, they get uh, really righteous, like self-righteous about it. And, you know, uh, use tactics such as you know, things like I don't have the time to explain these things to you to basically brush you off. Yeah, it, it all seems very Trump-like to me. Um, do you think that the success of Trump in 2016 and everything that we've seen leading up to today sort of was a catalyst for Craig Wright to sort of adopt that mentality and use it to his advantage? Yeah, you know, uh, I don't know if if he has you know directly gotten these ideas from observing Trump. I mean, I, I think it's kind of a a larger scale change that we're seeing in the the general conversation, uh, just due to the way that information disseminates these days over the internet, uh, where um, it is possible for you to decry a lot of things as being fake news and, and basically overwhelming people with misinformation because, you know, and I think in the early days, there were a lot of optimists who thought, well, the internet is going to, you know, bring power to truth and, you know, it will enable everyone to speak the truth. But I think that what a lot of people did not foresee was that it was actually also going to make it a lot easier to, to spread lies and misinformation. And so now, we have a real problem in general with distinguishing signal from noise and actually uh, distinguishing, you know, what information is relevant or, or reputable. And, and that's why it's so easy for, for people to become basically uh, sophisticated internet marketers and, and disseminate their own narrative, even if it may not be true. Right. I think that's a good lead into uh, talking about the article, uh, which, you know, we, we both agree is, is very important and it was timely. Um, your op-ed is massive and I'm still trying to kind of process all of it. And honestly, I've had to reread parts at least 10 times or more. How on earth did you go about writing this thing? Um, you know, it actually started out over a year ago where I wasn't, I wasn't really writing. I was just compiling and archiving information because I saw a pattern with Craig where he would make statements about the medium to long-term future, you know, very bold, assertive statements, uh, you know, confidence inspiring statements. And, and I realized that, you know, almost none of these things were actually coming true, but he was banking on the fact that nobody was going to call him out on it because 
you know, by the time a year or more had passed, he would have moved on and be making other different bold assertive statements about what was going to happen, you know, a year from now. And so because I had already seen that he had this tendency to uh, try to delete his tracks and, you know, cover up old information by trying to scrub it off the internet, I figured, hey, uh, it should be fairly low cost for me to just start archiving everything. And then if this pattern does continue as I anticipate that it probably will, then I'll just be able to resurrect all of this archived information and, and point out to everybody to say, look, this is his MO. You should expect that he will continue to do this. And, and therefore, you should not place a lot of confidence in the things that he is saying. And so it just started with archiving all this information. And, and then, you know, it, it ended up being not just me, but a number of other people in the community were also doing their own research and publishing things. And so I started archiving all of that, just creating a massive you know, Google document with everything. And, and then, you know, near the end of 2018, I started trying to actually categorize things and, you know, create a theme of saying, you know, these are the, the main um, characteristics that we're seeing from him. And here's all the evidence showing that, you know, these are his characteristic uh, attributes of, you know, what he is doing over the years. And, and I ended up uh, going, you know, a lot further back in history as well and trying to figure out, well, how long has he really had this modus operandi? And as far as I can tell, you know, it's, it, it seems like decades. But of course, a lot of that really early history stuff got uh, cut out and we ma mainly focused on the Bitcoin era history. Um, you lay out several things that you know we know and can prove that he's not satoshi what would you say are the most important or the, like the most glaringly obvious the most glaringly obvious are the actual i think things around uh, the protocol itself um i think the simplest one being like the base 58 address stuff where he didn't seem to understand you know which characters were allowed or not allowed in base 58 and that one is particularly glaring because satoshi invented the base 58 uh character encoding um so you would you would imagine that the inventor of of that encoding would understand why certain characters were not allowed um you know then uh, there are a lot of of other things that are just like contradictory statements between what Satoshi said and things Craig have said or um, I think one of the ones that that I really liked was he I think it was actually on video or audio recording where he had said he only sent bitcoins to uh, to Hal and Zuko and at the time that was what was known as public information. And then maybe a year or so later, Mike Hearn actually came out and published a bunch of private emails between himself and Satoshi that showed that Satoshi had actually sent uh, a decent number of Bitcoins back and forth with Mike Hearn. And so, you know, that, that was interesting to see, you know, if, if Craig was Satoshi, you would think that he would know about that unpublished uh, transaction information. In Jameson one, I, I'm, thinking of right now was the different online posting time behaviors between Satoshi and Craig. Can you sort of explain that, how you compiled that? Yeah, um, that one I would say is not as strong evidence. Uh, it, it's more, you know, it's another signal. Um, but, you know, in and of itself, it is not hard proof. It is technically possible 
that you know Craig was operating two kind of like split online personas and very meticulously only posting from the Satoshi account during hours that uh, seemed to match with the like Eastern Standard Time Zone and then posting as Craig Wright under hours that match the uh, Eastern Australian Time Zone. But the, the main point there being that um, if, you, if you aggregate up all of the timestamps of public activity by either one of them, meaning like blog posts and code commits and, uh, and forum posts, there is a pretty clear gap where it would lead you to, to believe that the, the Satoshi entity was sleeping during periods that someone who lived on the East Coast of America would sleep and Craig was sleeping during periods of, of time that you expect someone living in Eastern Australia would speak or would sleep. And, and, and you know, the whole sleep thing, it's an inferred piece of data. It is, it is the lack of data, it's the inactivity, the lack of activity during those hours that leads you to infer that someone is sleeping. But of course, we can't prove that they were sleeping during that time. Right. I mean, it sounds like somebody would have to be incredibly smart and dedicated and disciplined to do something like that. And your evidence sort of leads, <laughs> leads us to believe that he doesn't have that capacity. Um, that's yeah. more comment. Sorry. <laughs> um, so Jameson, you said that Satoshi's identity doesn't really matter. If that's true, you know, why are we still sitting here talking about this whole fiasco? Well, because it is a curiosity for a lot of people, um, Satoshi has become a mythical, almost like godlike figure, you know, who someone who has created this incredibly robust system that is, is threatening to you know, central banks globally, potentially even threatening to nation states in some regards. And so, you know, people revere Satoshi for a number of reasons. Um, and it's also a fascinating story that they were able to have such amazing operational security that no one has been able to find them. Um, I, I, I think this is true uh, for a number of cases of, you know, people, uh, for example, like fugitives who have gone on the run and managed not to be found for decades. Uh, those type of stories are interesting to people simply because it's so hard to stay off the grid and not be found. Um, and then, of course, there's also just the, the aspect that there is decent evidence that Satoshi may be a billionaire uh, in, in Bitcoin terms and yet they have never spent any of that money, which, you know, is another major question of, you know, why would someone who is, is so wealthy not actually make use of any of that wealth? So what does Craig have to gain from this whole thing then? What, like, what's, what do you think his in-game is here? Because it seems like he's doing way more damage to himself than good. Yeah, the, the end game, I mean, you can get very speculative about what the end game is. The only thing that I'm fairly sure of is that, you know, he's just trying to keep the ball rolling. Uh, we could speculate as to uh, why he ended up doing these things that he has done over the past uh, number of years. It, it seems that um, it was, you know, just trying to keep the ball rolling from, from other activities. We, we are aware of, for example, like the Australian tax office fraud uh, where 
uh, he was assessed, I think, some pretty steep penalties for trying to uh, take advantage of tax rebates that were uh, re- ended up being rejected uh, by the Australian tax office. And and who knows, you know, what other activities he may have been doing where he was privately posing as Satoshi back in the day in order to get various types of investments. And and so we if we believe like the public things that Inchain and Craig have said, publicly they say that their end game is to assert uh, you know intellectual property rights over various pieces of the ecosystem and and you know perhaps they're going to be patent trolling or perhaps they just want to prohibit other actors in the ecosystem from doing certain things one of the one of the explanations that was given in the satoshi affair was that they were going to try to package up and sell all of this intellectual property for uh, a huge sum of money but I think at this point, that's fairly unlikely given, you know, how poor his reputation is. So, yeah, I mean, what is, it's not clear, you know, how he is making money at this point in time. Uh, you know, we have some evidence and statements that he made a, a decent amount of money during his, like, initial coming out as Satoshi. But, um, you know, is InChain actually a profitable company? I highly doubt it. Um, is, is their end game more on the legal side of, of trying to, uh, you know, charge money for use of intellectual property or, or, or sue people for use of intellectual property? Really hard to say. Um, there even could be a much, you know, deeper game where, I think that it's quite possible that that everything that Craig is doing is kind of a smokescreen and that, you know, the real man behind the curtain has a completely different objective. But, you know, this is once again getting highly speculative. Right. That was going to lead me to my next question. Uh, What's Calvin Ayer's role in all this? The only thing that we have a pretty decent idea about is that he seems to be bankrolling a lot of it and... And, you know, there is pretty strong evidence that Calvin Air has very deep pockets. Um, he has made hundreds of millions of dollars from his, his offshore, offshore gambling empire over the years. And, you know, what do you do when you have that much money? And I imagine he probably has difficulty actually using that money um, in, in a number of different countries. I know that uh, I believe various United States authorities seized something like $70 million in assets from him over the years, which is probably only a small amount uh, to him. But um, it it seems like he would be very uh, well positioned to take advantage of, you know, censorship resistant crypto assets. And, and, you know, perhaps he wants to use those in his, his various online platforms to make it more difficult for authorities to, to interfere with his operations. And, you know, perhaps he also can kind of as a a double whammy um, improve the fungibility of his assets by pouring a lot of them through mining operations and essentially, you know, getting freshly minted uh, coins coming out of these, uh, these electrical burning stations essentially. 
And, and I guess this sort of plays into the recent news that uh, Craig filed copyright on Satoshi's white paper. Why do you think it took him so long? I mean, to me, it seems like that would have been a good first move. The I think the simplest explanation is that he just thought of it. I mean, that you know he's just trying to keep the ball rolling, and and you know um, whether or not it was even Craig who thought of it is hard to say. You know, um, the Jimmy Wynn, for example, is a, I think a patent attorney or at least a former patent attorney, um, and and has done a lot of stuff in IP law, and so who knows which of, of his employees' ideas it might have actually been. But, you know, they, they found uh, an interesting legal loophole where uh, the Copyright Office does not actually perform any uh, scrutiny or due diligence or, um, you know, verification, as it were, on these claims. The Copyright Office just assumes that if someone fraudulently makes a claim on a copyright, then the real copyright holder will come along and the issue will get settled in court. Now, of course, that becomes really tricky because we're pretty sure that Satoshi is not going to sue anybody in court over uh, copyright. That's a good point. Um, do you think that it's important for the real Satoshi to reveal himself soon? If you do, how would he go about doing that? Uh, I mean, I don't think that the real Satoshi should ever reveal their identity. That would create, I think, far more problems. And of course, would would be pretty horrible for, I think, Satoshi's future life. If Satoshi is even still alive. Is there any... Honestly? <laughs> yeah, so if if anything, if, if Satoshi was going to take any action... I would prefer to just see, you know, a signed cryptographic message, for example, from the transaction that we know Satoshi sent to Hal. Uh, Satoshi could uh, sign a message from the addresses that contained the UTXOs that were spent to send to Hal Finney, I think in block nine. But, um, you know, that would be similar, in fact, to what we saw recently where an anonymous person uh, signed a message using... Uh, a Bitcoin address that has appeared in some of the, the legal filings in the Kleiman lawsuit where it appeared that Craig had made a statement to a lawyer of his several years ago that, that the, I believe it was the Tulip Trust held a bunch of Bitcoin in like a dozen or two dozen different addresses. And, and we've, we've now seen that there is cryptographic evidence that uh, whoever controls one of those addresses is quite adamant that they are not Satoshi and not Craig Wright. Interesting. Um, I'm going to shift gears a little bit here. Um, let's go back to the article. Um, I just want to ask you, you know, what do you think the impact of your article, uh, what, what, what impact do you think it'll have on the Bitcoin community and the future of Bitcoin? Well, I doubt that I changed too many people's minds. Um, if anything, I may have just shown people that there's more evidence than they were aware of in the first place. Um, and it most likely strengthened people's resolve one way or another, where I've, I've seen, you know, a lot of the negative feedback of the, the people who are uh, Craig Wright believers, if you will, uh, managed to come up with all kinds of excuses of, of why um, the information in my article is not factual or at least not provable or whatever. One of my favorite ones actually was that 
nothing in my article should be believed because it's an opinion editorial article. Therefore, everything in it is not a provable fact. That was one of the funniest, uh, uh, I guess, logical uh, hoops that somebody jumped through. But, um, you know, basically what I wanted to do with this is just have uh, a well um, thought out and uh, easily findable you know, comprehensive piece in the future so that if anyone does come into this space and starts hearing stuff about Craig and is trying to do their own research and figure out what they should believe that hopefully this will save them a lot of time. Good. Was, was there anything that you didn't mention in the article? Oh, there were a lot of things that didn't get mentioned. Uh, you know, most of them like were his, his non Bitcoin history. There were also, there was also a lot of other evidence that was less about his activities in Bitcoin and more about his his character that you know some of the editors and lawyers decided was uh, too much, I guess, on the side of character attack rather than you know factual statements about uh, his Satoshi claims. So yeah, there's there's you know he's been a busy guy uh, for the past several years, and there's. There's a lot more out there that would probably sway people one way or another to, to believe uh, that he's a credible person. So without getting into detail you know, for legal reasons, are there any resources that you could point our listeners to to research this further? Um, I, I think that I, yeah, we linked to a number of them at the very bottom of the article. Um, you know, there's like stopcraigwright.com. Um, there is uh, a plethora of Reddit posts uh, by a contrarian on, on the, the BTC subreddit, for example, uh, where he has a lot of other sort of back history of, of Craig's activities. But, you know, what, whether or not that's even really important for people to spend their time doing, I would say probably not. <laughs> right. It's kind of catch-22, like you mentioned. Um, I'm curious, have, have his lawyers reached out to you? Uh, I have not been contacted by any legal representation. And the only reason that I can figure that that would be the case is because I'm a United States citizen. And as far as I can tell, um, you know, Craig has been kind of poked and prodded by a lot of people, but it seems like the only ones that he has had his lawyers uh, actually uh, file actions against are not American citizens. And most likely that is a result of the, uh, the I believe it was the Speech Act of 2010, where uh, President Obama basically made it uh, illegal for people in the UK to do what Craig is doing. And, and the term for that is, uh, I believe, called uh, libel tourism, where he's taking advantage of the fact that the UK has almost like the exact opposite type of libel laws as America, uh, which give a lot more power to the, uh, the plaintiff who is making a claim that someone has libeled them. And so the the burden of proof is actually on the defendant in the UK. Whereas in United States, the burden of proof is on the plaintiff who is saying, you know, this person libeled me. 
um, you know, as a, a result of just a number of legal conversations that I have had with a variety of different lawyers, um, the, you know, the laws in America protect me, that speech law protects me against any actions in the UK itself. And in general, there's an extra level of protection, at least from the American standpoint, because Craig is, um, he is well known enough that he would be considered a public figure. And the, the burden of proof for LaBelle against public figure is even higher in America where it has to be shown that the person making the defamatory statements um, actually knows that what they're saying is incorrect and is doing it with malice. And, you know, it's very, very difficult to prove that. Um, and, and I think that I've done a pretty good job citing all of my sources in the article uh, that show that, yes, the article is biased. I obviously uh, have my own beliefs and conclusions about what I'm trying to drive home here, but everything that I put into the article is backed up uh, with evidence. You know, it, it, without even saying his name, you know, we work closely with uh, the gentleman from Bedford. Um, we're, <laughs> we're watching that closely and, and we wish him the best, but um, that's sort of why we asked that question because um, uh, it just seems like lawsuits are getting thrown out left and right. So we're, um, we're really happy to hear that nothing's come your way yet. Yeah. Uh, it, <laughs> Uh, I, I saw a tweet you commented to Peter too. Um, I think it might have been yesterday, and uh, I do hope he's he's taking it as seriously as he needs to be. Right. Yeah, I don't envy him. Is there anyone else in the community, or maybe even outside of it, that you know, if we're if you're sort of detracting from one person, is there someone who's worth actually paying attention to? and following in lieu of this kind of stuff? Um, I don't think that there's any one person, and I, I think that that's how it should be. Um, I think that if you're going to uh, try to follow the uh, evolution of this space, then you need to diversify the you know, perspectives that you're ingesting. Um, uh, you know, one of the biggest problems that I have, not just with Craig, but with any single leader type figure, including myself, is, you know, I, I don't want myself to, to become, uh, you know, in, in this position either. Um, you know, each person is unique and has their own perspective of what Bitcoin is and what Bitcoin should be. And... And, you know, one of the reasons why I got involved in this project in the first place is because I felt like the concept of money itself belongs to humanity at large. And therefore, it makes sense for it to be an open source project where anyone who cares enough can contribute. So that basically means that if you want to try to get a grasp of what the meat space consensus is for, for Bitcoin and, and how it should evolve, then you need to diversify the opinions that you're ingesting. So, you know, you need to be listening to developers. You need to be listening to the business owners. You need to be listening to the, the folks in, you know, on the ground um, in, in third world countries, for example, who are living with monetary systems that are completely broken. And, you know, we need to figure out how we can best cater 
to as many of these people as possible and you know, find that, I guess, subset, that overlap of what are the attributes that are going to be most helpful for most of these people. Is there anything you're working on right now that you weren't working on the last time we talked to you about that you're particularly excited about or, or working towards, I guess? I mean, in general, I'm trying to put the whole Craig Wright thing behind me. Um, I, 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 I'm sure that Craig will continue, you know, with his machinations and manage to find novel new ways to get a lot of media attention. I mean, you know, from, from a marketing standpoint, the whole copyright thing was, you know, got to give him credit. It was a, a very shrewd use of resources where I think he spent like $55. And as a result, he got major, major media attention uh, with this like $55 expenditure and maybe a few hours of, of actual like paperwork and filling things out. So, you know, I think that that's the type of thing we can continue to expect. Uh, and it is kind of like, like you said, it's like that Trump-like um, exploitation where on one hand you can decry a lot of the media as fake news whenever whatever they're saying doesn't go along with your narrative but then you can just do these such you know outrageous and outlandish things that it's uh it's so captivating that media organizations can't help but publish it because they know that they're going to get a lot of clicks. They know they're going to get a lot of advertising revenue by doing that. And so it, it is a really uh, a vicious like catch 22 type of situation. Uh, I wish I had a uh, solution for that. I think at this point, you know, a lot of the conversations that I am seeing where people are talking about Craig, they're like, can we please stop talking about Craig? <laughs> and I don't know how, you do that. Um, the only thing that I can do is try to stop talking about him as much as possible. Um, Jameson, Bitcoin 2019 is right around the corner. Do you think there's a possibility that Craig's going to be there? Ooh, uh, <laughs> I, I really don't know. You never know where he's going to show up. Um, it would be interesting though. Uh, because, you know, I think there was like a deconomy or something a year or so ago, you know, when uh, uh, Vitalik basically stood up and, and was calling him out. But um, I guess one of the, the things that I'm more concerned about is, is various events and organizations um, and media, in fact, that are consciously making the decision to interview him or people in his organization um, under the guise of, well, you know, we want to present everyone's opinions and we're not biased and we just want to, to put the information out there for people to consume. And, you know, I've seen a number of different events and organizations do that. And I think it's once again, kind of, uh, you know, letting him exploit that, uh, anti-censorship, I guess, aspect uh, that a lot of people in the system are, are so interested in, um, where people seem to have a, a problem differentiating between uh, censorship by authorities and freedom of association, aka like self-censorship of, um, you know, if we believe that, that everyone has the right to decide you know, who they're interacting with, then it's perfectly fine for individuals or organizations to decide that they don't want to interact with someone and they don't want to give that person any attention because they think it's a waste of their time and resources. 
So uh, it's kind of kind of goes hand in hand with, I guess, some of the contention around the delisting of the BSV asset on a number of exchanges where, uh, you know, some people decry that as censorship and others say, well, you know what, um, it's, it's, they really brought it upon themselves and have created so much of a headache that uh, various organizations don't want to deal with it. And that's why they're removing it. And they have the right to do that because it's their platform, it's their property. Um, <laughs> so I just wish that, that more people would agree that it's okay to ostracize people who have shown themselves to be, you know, toxic and, and threatening to the community because uh, you basically show them the door. You say, you know, you can leave and don't come back and we don't want to have anything to do with you. And, and I, I, I kind of, that is what I would like to see happen in general, but of course I can't force anyone to do that. It's, it's up to each individual and organization to decide, you know, what they're comfortable with in the first place. Um, I, the last question I have for you is, uh, do you have any privacy updates for us? Have you, have you improved it any more than you already have leveled up? Uh, not particularly, you know, on the, the privacy side, I think the, the only way to really uh, to level up again, or at least to do each, each major leveling up of privacy basically requires you destroying everything that you have and starting over again from scratch. So, you know, maybe in a few years. Oh yeah. Hey, Jameson, last, last one. You can answer in one word if you want, but what is reason for, I, I found that very mysterious. Ah, uh, reason number four. I wish that I had an answer to that. And in fact, I have been in communication with someone who was in the Royal Australian Air Force in the 90s. But unfortunately, uh, they were not able to, to get any, uh, any further information on, on like the specifics for that as well. Um, trying to see this person reached out to me and uh, basically said that it sounded to them like reason four is discharged due to a training failure, which in this case would have been a failure to pass his exams. Um, so that, that person was also telling me that, uh, that it's likely that he would have been simultaneously enlisted, but still effectively living as a civilian and that the Australian Air Force would have been paying for his university fees and giving him a small allowance, maybe for rent or whatever. Um, and, and so it's, it's still very hard to say what the actual reasoning is. Um, you know, the, there were a number of pages in that area of the records that were redacted, including like a letter from Craig. And I suspected some of that probably has the specific information of, of uh, you know, why he was discharged and why he uh, was not allowed to come back, but we'll probably never know. I love it. Yeah, spooky. The Bitcoin Magazine podcast is a BTC media produced podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. Today's episode was produced by myself and Dave. Theme music provided by Billy Sly from the Crypto Cantina. A very special thanks to our guests, Jameson Lopp, and of course, Satoshi Nakamoto. We are eternally grateful. 
Visit BitcoinMagazine.com for more in-depth news, analysis, and resources about the most successful peer-to-peer currency, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at Bitcoin Magazine. You can find more engaging crypto podcasts over at letstalkbitcoin.com, and you can follow them on Twitter at the LTV Network for all the latest episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the show on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And if you've got the time, please leave us a review. It really helps us improve the show and reach new listeners. Thanks for tuning in, guys. We'll see you next time.